Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 314 of the Fun With Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcast, or, oh, I love saying this, episode one of 2022. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who's filled with winter joy and whose house is filled with virtual learning children, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. <laughs> hey, Robin. Yep, we are in the middle of a snowstorm here in Michigan, and it's delightful. How is that winter joy treating you? <laughs> well, let's just say this podcast is a welcome distraction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and as uh, as a father of a child that is also learning virtually, I have no idea what you're talking about. Everything is wonderful. <laughs> it is Wednesday afternoon, February 2nd, and Chris and I are going to talk about the just recently finished 24 Hours of Daytona, the rally in Monte Carlo, and of course, all the latest F1 news. And I have an interview with Acura DPI driver and just all around great guy, Ricky Taylor. But Chris, where shall we start? Um, should we touch on Formula One? Ah, uh, yes. Formula One deserves a touch. Let's do it. All right. Uh, lots of changes. Uh, there's some. There's some news. There's uh, upcoming car launches. Always, uh, always an exciting time. We have a new FIA president. A uh, gentleman by the name of Mohammed Ben Salim, who's replaced Jean Todd. His first act was to criticise Hamilton for not turning up to the prize ceremony and threatening him with some sort of penalty, which I thought was nice. Lovely, great um, belief to uh, offer. Yeah. We've had poor old Safnauer kicked out of Aston Martin. Um, yeah, which called, that one stings a little, I have to say. <laughs> oh, I feel bad. I, there's rumours he might turn up. At Alpine, who've also been uh, wielding the axe, but we'll come to Alpine in a second. So Safnau might be back in the sport soon, but for right now, he's uh, presumably enjoying some GNT somewhere on a beach. But uh, I hope he's in Dearborn, back, back in Michigan, where he... Oh, no, where that was Michigan a bad mistake. Michigan loves him, and we love... <sighs> Michigan loves him, and he loves Michigan. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Um, so, Crack, uh, an ex-BMW head, is now at the new... Head of racing, uh, reporting to Martin Whitmarsh at Aston Martin. And, and we should have... say briefly, I, I, mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that name. Martin Whitmarsh coming in was the beginning of the rumors that Sapphire would be on his way out. And, of course, those rumors were denied. And, of course, those rumors were then proven true. Yeah, I think that could prove to be – it's going to be a watershed moment in Aston Martin's history. I think this could either go one of two ways. They're either going to go on to greatness as uh, – as Mr. Stroll expects, or they're going to run out of money and um, change names again soon. But uh, let's hope it's all going well. So Fallows is an ex-Red Bull technical engineer who is joining as the new Aston Martin technical director. Um, that deal was done a long time ago, but they finally agreed on when he could actually join Aston Martin. So he'll be uh, he'll be in at the team and, and uh, setting them off in a new direction. I imagine that's less Mercedes-like and maybe more Red Bull-like. But, um, yeah, lots of change at Aston Martin. At Alpine, we've had Budkowski fired and Alan Prost's contract not renewed. And he was uh, most upset about the way that was done. So Alan Prost is, is not happy. And Laurent Rossi is now fully in control of Alpine. And uh, we shall see if that's a good thing or not. I, I, I suspect it might be a tough year for Alpine. <laughs> Yeah, um, and 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 what a year to make such a decision! You know, there's enough change going on in the sport. You don't need to add extra um, fissures in your already <laughs> already uh, dynamic plan, right? 
Absolutely, yeah. You want stability in your organization, not disruption when you're trying to deal with a whole new car and, and regulation change. Um, so obviously the big news is the aftermath of Abu Dhabi continues to rumble on. Uh, we've got a chap called uh, Peter Bayer leading the inquiry, the FIA marking their own homework, which is always always a, gr- a great thing. Um, yeah, so- judge, jury, executioner, that's always the best way. Everyone is, it's just been proven. <laughs> <laughs> they are going to be talking to the F1 teams, uh, the sporting directors, and even the drivers on the safety car use. Apparently, Verstappen loves it and Hamilton's not so keen. Anyway, who would have figured? Uh, they will then report to the commission, the F1 commission, on their findings and recommendations. And obviously, Dem- Dominicali will also be uh, consulted. Real quick, I just because there is a new head of the FIA, that is, that who's who... Uh, replace John Todd, but uh, yep. Stefano Domenicali is still head of Formula One management, still head of Liberty Media's Formula One management then. That's right, yep. Yeah, yep. you got the Formula we just One make side, sure that's got clear. the FIA side. Yeah, exactly. So Domenicali is, is the new Bernie Eccleston, and Mohamed Ben Sayayim is either the new John Todd or the new Max Mosley, however you want to look at it, <laughs> however far you go back in the sport. <laughs> yeah, well, it, with it, that's, that's a fascinating one. I'm just, I'm thinking of personal history the yeah. second you say that um yeah it's it's fascinating to see how that all unreal because is is michael massey going to survive this that's a big question mark yeah it's looking it's looking unlikely the rumors are that he might be out uh, what they are thinking about is they have recognized and i think this is a fair point that you know massey's job essentially was was three jobs rolled into one um, and probably too much for any one individual. So, you know, obviously he was the race director and that encompassed being the sporting director, the safety delegate and the track delegate. And so he's dealing with a lot of things. And obviously he, the, the teams had direct access to him, emailing him, texting him, calling him, some of which we were privy to. And, you know, he's trying to make decisions and... Um, Clearly, we all think, well, I certainly think that in Abu Dhabi, he made some of the wrong ones. So they're talking about setting up a new structure that will separate some of those roles out and and also insulate the race director, uh, whatever that ends up having responsibility for, from the team. So there will be some sort of buffer between in a new role between the teams and the actual guy making the decisions. Uh, Scott Elkins is a na- name that is being rumoured as a replacement for Massey, but uh, I think it'll be some time yet before we know for sure if he's definitely leaving that role. I just implore, beg the FIA to not just add more complexity as the answer. The problem here is consistency. Have your rules, however long or short they are, and just follow them consistently. That's the beginning middle and end of this story the vast majority of the controversy of abu dhabi stemmed from massey shooting from the hip and making unprecedented changes and uh following some of his rules in some regards and not others but not others in the same regard and just kind of like this like stone soup mix match of uh the rules and how they're applied so we don't need more rules. We just need a set of rules that is followed consistently. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're reviewing the articles in question, the 48.12, 48.13, uh, that the use of the safety car and the restart procedures. So all of that's being reevaluated, maybe to try and simplify them a little bit um, or to at least make them ironclad so they're always followed without any sort of uh, shooting from the hip. Interestingly, Bayer was mentioning in an interview that he doesn't see... You know, even if they if they decide that Massey made ultimately the wrong decision, uh, the only option would be to void that race result. And therefore, Verstappen would still be champion because, as we all recall, they were level on points, Verstappen and Hamilton, but Verstappen had more wins. I, I mean, uh, I think... One more still, win, precisely. Exactly. And, slightly, I mean, although I can, can see they don't really have much choice in the matter there, I mean, it's still... Yeah, Hamilton had the race won, effectively, right? So um, that would still be rather unsatisfactory. So that's that's where we stand. We should have some some reports on that uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks, and then I guess we'll find out if Lewis is uh, is happy enough with the the changes that are made and is willing to to come back to the sport. Because right now he has gone completely. He's, yeah, he's completely incommunicado. Yeah he's, yeah, he's gone. He's just disappeared. He's checked out. So I think he's decided to just uh, hang tight and wait to see what's going to happen and whether he fancies racing in the, in whatever rules and situations that are put in place. So uh, yeah. interesting times. Well, I, Hamilton's got a race. He's going to – it's going to be remarkable and swift. And I think majority – are people are going to turn their heads and just think less favorably of Hamilton if he plays the if he if, if he's a no fair I'm not playing kind of uh, mindset and this was a very bizarre and extreme set of circumstances that led to the result that we had obviously we've talked about it a fair amount and we've talked about it less than many but <laughs> but. For Hamilton to quit as a result, regardless of what the FIA comes up comes up with, I just think it would be a mistake and ultimately one he would regret. Yeah, and the the thing is, the cars obviously it'll be fascinating to see if these cars are more raceable given the changes in the aero and performance wise, they're not going to be a whole lot slower than the outgoing cars, which were the quickest generation of F one cars ever. So they should be fun to drive. They should be fun to race. The new 18-inch tyres, Pirelli, are making positive noises about how they'll they'll allow the drivers to push harder for longer on those tyres. Well, again, um, I mean, Pirelli saying their own product is great isn't the most <laughs> <laughs> groundbreaking <laughs> news story. No. Um, but, you know, at least they're saying that. If they were saying, though, they're, they're right, worse. Right, 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 right. Really it's better than Pirelli saying, well... We're not quite sure. How many um, octaves did their voice go up when, when they answered the question? <laughs> oh, no, they're great. No, they're great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is an Italian company, so they, uh, yeah, there's probably some hand motions. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should have, um, we should have an Aperol spritz as a dedication to them <laughs> after, after your statement, sir. Aperol spritz. In honor of Italy. I mean, what a fine motorsport heritage Italy has. So we're all, you know, exactly. partially the, Italian our, motor racing my fans. Favorite Ita- my favorite Italian driver, Michael Schumacher. So that's all. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we have some launches coming up, don't we? Uh, we have first. seven launches that have, have dates attached to them. I believe we'll have yeah, ten so launches eventually. Nine first for sure. Team, first team Aston Martin on uh, February the 10th, uh, followed the, uh, by McLaren on the 11th. And then we have uh, AlphaTauri on the 14th, uh, and then Ferrari on the 17th, Mercedes on the 18th, Alpine on the 21st, and you just found out that Alfa Romeo are going to be on the 27th, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And these, of course, are all in February. Uh, We have not yet heard from Haas F1, and that's the one where I'm like, oh, yeah, we're kind of 50-50 on them even having a car. Williams F1, or Williams Racing, I believe it is now, and uh, Red Bull Racing. Uh, Neither of those teams have yet announced a date for the reveal of, of their car. So the peculiar thing about Alfa Romeo's date is that the first test is scheduled to start on the 23rd. So they're going to miss the first test, I guess. Well, <laughs> Which you know. there's only two is probably an issue. Oh, wait. Look at that. We have a, we have a new special guest on the podcast. What is it, Harrison? Uh, We're talking about Formula One and race cars. Do you want to say anything about race cars? you want to say something about Ferraris? Mm-hmm. What do you want to say? Say it into the microphone. Make. Ferraris are the best. Ferraris are the best. You heard it here first. Virtual learning, everybody. Virtual learning. <laughs> yeah, so that's, um, you know, Alfa Romeo didn't have the greatest of seasons last year. Um, so missing the first test in Barcelona, uh, probably not ideal if that's uh, confirmed. Maybe they just got their dates a little messed up. But uh, there is another test starting in uh, in Bahrain on March the 10th. So does seem that they're going to make that one and uh yeah i would hope that the other teams uh will launch prior to the 23rd certainly williams uh and uh, as you mentioned has and red bull i would think would be aiming to do that first race right. on the but 20th I, of March I will, in Bahrain. i will mm-hmm. say it's not it's not unheard of for teams to miss the first test that's not an unprecedented thing to happen and they could even run a 21 car with an 18-inch wheel and tire package, well, I'd have to double-check if that's allowed in the rules, but I know that they did that for tire test after the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. So they could even potentially get some tire data from the old car and then transfer that to the new car at the second test. So I, I'm just saying it's it's not it's not such an extreme position that we've never seen before to reveal the car after the first test. Well, you're right, but back in the day, there used to be a lot more tests. I mean, we only have six days of testing prior to the start of the season. Uh, and this you know, is a big reveal. It's a big, big rule change, big change as well. Yeah. yeah. So that that's a little bit troubling for the guys from Hinwell, uh, formerly known as Sauber, that they're going to miss is the first test. I mean, you're right. They could maybe run an older car or a hybrid car or something, but you'd really want to be running your 22 chassis. Uh, I think in that test to uh, to set you up for a good start to the season. Um, I heard that uh, Botas insisted on an espresso machine mounted in the car, <laughs> and that uh, delayed that delayed some final crash tests and things. So maybe that's yeah, the that issue. Yeah, that cup holder was optimization took a while, didn't it? <laughs> exactly. That it's it's potential downforce that cup holder. So uh, I do have I do have news. I did a track inspection during my Christmas break. I went to uh, the Orange Bowl in Miami. Uh, sadly, as a Michigan fan, and got, <laughs> oh, no. got to oh, walk. You went to the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> got to see the parking lot. And this is my track report. It 
yes, folks, it, it is a parking lot. I did see some new asphalt. So they've they've spent some money, but my God, it just looks like a like somewhere you'd park cars. So I don't So it's really... gonna be the first ever Formula One Gym Connor. Yeah, it looks like Caesar's Palace revisited. So um, go back and watch those early 80s uh, Grand Prix from Las Vegas to get a feel for what the Miami GP is going to be like. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, you know, I obviously, on a fairly regular basis, defend what uh, American racing is, American race drivers, etc., etc., etc. This Miami Grand Prix does not help my defense. So that's that's... I, I continue to be skeptical of it. I, I'm very much looking forward to be proven wrong. <laughs> so, um, is this a podcast first, a World Rally Championship discussion? Or have you talked about rallying in the past? Uh, it's it's a, it's, it's, it's us, a podcast it? first in a while, certainly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the first this year. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I mean, I know, other than the, that the event took place and I know very, very little about it. I believe, uh, I believe it was a Sebastian Loeb victory, and his dog was his co-driver. Do I have the details right? <laughs> well, let's just talk about World Rally Championship. So, fiftieth uh, year of of the World Rally Championship. I used to be a big fan back in the Colin McRae, Richard Burns era. I thought rallying was was pretty awesome, and I actually used to go. That was to a great era. Uh, great, great era. And then most people have heard of the Group B. Uh, period, which was also pretty spectacular. Yes. Um, where the rally cars were just phenomenal. Um, I mean, that was so, what, 600 horsepower back in the day before they were limited to 300 for a while. Yeah, and they were just monsters. All-wheel drive, really, really quick. Unfortunately, uh, probably a bit too quick for the stages, but... Uh, well, but and then still Ari Vatanen did a Pikes Peak Hill climb in a Group B car that was just insane to watch. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, definitely so. So they've they've uh, they've also introduced some new rules for this season. So it's a hybrid. So it's got a 1.6 liter uh, internal combustion engine combined with a 100 kilowatt motor. It's got an onboard battery pack with almost four kilowatt hours. Um, so that's uh, it's a whole new generation of car. They uh, they have to brake hard to regen the battery. So driving styles might be uh, might be modified a little bit. The the big three teams are back. So you've got uh, Toyota, the reigning champions, Hyundai and Ford M Sport. Um, we got uh, many of the same drivers back. So the reg- uh, reigning champion, Sebastian Ogier, is back, but only with a partial season. So there is a possibility of a guy not called Sebastian winning it this year. Um, his teammate, uh, Evans, is back. He's been the runner-up the last couple of years. Uh, Rovan Perez, the third driver in Toyota. you got Newville, Tanak, and Solberg lining up for Hyundai. And for which Ford, which Solberg, Petter or his uh, brother? Uh, Petter, I believe. Because Petter is the younger brother that had success. He he was ch- rally champion. I forget. I think it was for Subaru. And yeah, it must but have been for Petter Subaru. It's Petter Solberg's son, isn't it? It's Petter Solberg's son, I believe. Not oh gosh! Brother. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm aging myself badly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because Pet- he he rallied what it's a good fifteen years ago, right? Yeah, Petter uh, was Petter just coming. It. You were mentioning the Richard Burns, um, uh, Colin, uh, oh god, uh, McRae, you know, yeah, Colin McRae, uh, yeah. and Petter was just coming on as, as those guys were coming. Out. I uh, I don't know, I don't know if Richard Burns had passed before Petter Burger started or right after. It was it was around that time frame. It, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, his his offspring. 
I forget his uh, his first name. Uh, of but it's course, it's not. Uh, of course, it's not the the younger brother. It's the younger brother's <laughs> son. I, that, that's just... <laughs> and then uh, for Ford, we have a guy called Breen from Ireland, Greensmith from uh, England, and uh, Sebastian Lowe popped up in the Ford. Um, he's also doing a partial season. So for those who haven't been following, uh, World Rallying's basically been dominated by guys called Sebastian for uh, almost two decades. So <laughs> Sebastian Lowe is a nine-time World Rally champion. Insanely quick. It's insanely quick, Lowe is. Oh, he is, yeah. And Ogier picked up the reins and, and is an eight-time champion. So the Sebs dominated. In fact, there was a period you can go back to where you had to be called Sebastian to win a world championship because you had uh, <laughs> Vettel winning in Formula One and you had right, uh, right. Loeb and Ogier in world rallying. So, yeah, I should have called Will Sebastian. But anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, had, we went to Monaco, which is a classic rally. And what was it? It was a battle between Ford and Toyota, between the two Sebs. I mean, Loeb is 47 years old now. He Man. just got done doing the Dakar rally. I hadn't had enough motor racing for the month of January, decided to turn up in Monaco and won it. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's incredibly he, quick. Incredibly quick. And his, uh, his co-driver is a, a, a lady by the name of Isabel, who is a 50-year-old school teacher. So there is hope for our motorsport futures yet, Robin. We're not done. <laughs> there it There's is. proof. <laughs> well, but and also, I, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but... Elio Castroneves, 46 years old, will be 47 in May. Exactly. Won the 24 hours of Daytona. Yeah, we're right in the thick of it, man. We're, we're right in our prime, Chris. Yeah, that's right. This is, this is our future is now. It, it is time to get the gloves on and go racing in 2022. Um, so just to round out the results, we had Breen uh, uh, in third for Ford. Reverend Perrot was fourth for Toyota. Greensmith uh, fifth for Ford and Newville sixth for Hyundai so the two guys who finished first and second neither of which are doing the whole championship <laughs> have um you know taken the points and run and I don't know when we're going to see them again but uh yeah it looks like it's going to be fun to keep an eye on on the rallying uh there's 13 rounds uh this year the next one is in Sweden at the end of February um and we do a tour of of the world it doesn't come to the United States sadly um and it'll be uh, finishing in Japan way back in the uh, mid-November. Mid so uh, keep an eye out for that if you uh, fancy seeing some different four-wheeled motorsport because I love watching, you know, the car control of rally drivers on the on the gravel or the ice. It's just astonishing what they can do with those cars. And these new, new generation of cars, they look cool. They seem to have plenty of power. Uh, some of the stage uh, action was fun, you know, and, um, yeah, it was good stuff. What what do the cars because what kind of slowly drifted me more pure road racing especially open wheel cars was that we seemed to lose the big slip angles hanging it out kind of and it just became neat and tidy seemed like it was a combination of more downforce and the first of the Sebastian Sebastian Loeb coming in and showing a different driving style being so effective in rally. Yeah, I mean, I think it does depend on the types of stages. I mean, Monaco's mostly tarmac, so you're right. I mean, they they did a, there was a few jumps, there was a few uh, hairpin turns where they they do some lovely pivoting around the front axle, but yeah, it was it was still fairly neat and tidy because those roads are pretty narrow and it, there's not too much margin forever. 
Um, but you'll get there'll be there'll be rallies with gravel stages. Sweden, I imagine, will be icy, and so there will be much greater slip angles and 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 some more spectacular action. I mean, WRC is a good uh, good app. You can go on there and you can check out. You can you can follow live timing if you if you're that into it. But there is usually a nice roundup of the highlights of the of each stage, and so you can just uh, check out who's crashed and who hasn't. Well. If you wanted to see cars slipping around in the ice, you should have checked out the 24 Hours of Daytona. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That race, this is in Florida. Now, okay, to be fair, it is northern Florida. But usually we're talking about this time of year, 70 degrees, 75 degrees during the day, 50s at night. It was below freezing at night at the 24 hours of Daytona for slick tire clad prototype race cars to be running 170 mile an hour plus big brake zones. So it was crazy to watch. There were 17 caution periods. So we're what a caution period every 90 minutes on average. It was also, it was near record numbers if not the record number of cars it was 61 cars and a whole slew of them run with amateur drivers and that includes two prototype classes and um, a gt class so you had amateur drivers in cars with slick tires in at at moments sub freezing temperatures no sun load on the track and no tire warmers allowed, Chris. So <laughs> it it was it was a crazy race to say the least. Just so not even getting to the result. Just generally speaking, this was a nutty race, and we're talking about a twenty four hour race that was effectively a super long sprint race. It was insane, just how high the pace was for how long. Yeah, I mean, why don't we just sort of set the scene? So we had DPI, obviously the fastest class, uh, which was a battle between Acura and Cadillac. So seven entries in DPI with some great names. I mean, we got some ex-Formula One drivers. We got quite a few IndyCar drivers in there. And then we got some specialist sports car races. Um, So, you know, we had uh, uh, Jimmy Johnson, Kobayashi, sharing one of the Cadillacs, the number 48 Cadillac. How is the had, first uh, name you're going to say, Jimmy Johnson, <laughs> after all that introduction? Well, he just once again showed his quality, didn't he? Oh so we've got to bring God. it up. Okay, all right, all right. I, had, as you're saying, Kamui Kobayashi, uh, lots of Formula <laughs> One talent. Continue. We had uh, Dixon Palau, a Bourdais, sharing a car with a guy called Van der Zander, who I honestly I don't know who that is, but that's yeah, he, still three he's, really uh, good He's drives. Dutch. He, Rango Van de Zanda. Yeah, he's Dutch. He was with Wayne Taylor Racing for a long time. Um, yeah, and so he's he's an experienced sports car guy. Uh, and then sports uh, car guy. we had Magnussen in the sister Ganassi Cadillac uh, sharing uh, sharing that ride with Ericsson, Bamber, and Lynn. So um, you know, and, and we you know we had uh, the the Acura, the number uh, the number ten Acura with Rossi, Taylor, Albuquerque, and Stevens. So, um, and and Stevens being the Brit was, in that group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. There's a few Brits in the in the group. We had Pajanau, Castroneves, Jarvis, and Blomqvist in the number sixty Acura, and Jarvis, uh, which is the Maya Shank entry. Mm-hmm. Right, and Jarvis was formerly with uh, the Mazda team with. Uh, the, the powerhouse uh, Mazda team until it wasn't, um, and uh, 
and now that that team's dissolved, it, he's he's found a place um, with um, Michael Shank. Yeah. Well, and I had to look up Blomquist because obviously I know all about Stig because we've just been talking about World Rally. Uh, and Stig was the 1984 World Rally champion. So Tom is quite an interesting character. So obviously he's Stig's son, not his younger brother. And he, <laughs> he, <laughs> he is, he's got triple nationality. So obviously he's Swedish, but he's also a New Zealand and a Brit. So uh, quite, a, quite a lot of nationalities going on there. He is, I bet uh, he's got a darn decent number of frequent flyer miles too, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He used to race in Formula E. Uh, for Neo and Jaguar. And then uh, last year he was in LMP2, came second overall and second at Le Mans. So, you know, decent sports car pedigree. Can we um, say that the so, sun never sits on the Bloomquist nationality? Empire? <laughs> <Is> that- <laughs> if you want. Um, so in LMP2, which were all Areca chassis, we had some pretty interesting drivers there. We had yeah, uh, Colton Herta one- was there. Among yeah, with with award, yeah, and yeah, exactly uh, right. And then there was an all Dutch entry uh, with uh, Renus VK, uh, the most obvious Dutch driver in that uh, quarter. Did anyone burn their feet? <laughs> I don't know. Wouldn't I don't you, think so. anybody? <laughs> okay, <laughs> so sorry. Um, and then, as you mentioned, you got GT racing, and so the claim is that there's going to be. 18 OEMs competing across all the classes and all the races uh, this year in sports car racing, which is astonishing. Yeah. Um, Between the pro and the regular GTD class, we had Porsche, Corvettes, Lexus, Mercedes, Aston Martin, BMW, Lamborghini, Ferrari, McLaren. uh, You know, just an amazing array of of fabulous uh, Did you say Mercedes? Uh, I said AMG, but yes, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Mercedes AMG. Yep, yep. Um, so running the GT3. They they actually just didn't, they really don't play up the Mercedes heritage there, do they? So it just runs under the AMG branding, which well, I thought Well, I, I think more than anything, it's trying to play up, make, make the AMG brand a better known brand over. I think that's the intention as much as anything. But yeah, it's it's impressive to watch. And we have a special guest again. What is it, Harrison? <laughs> okay awesome <laughs> what were we talking about <laughs> so i wasn't aware of how they set the grid for daytona until you pointed out that they'd introduced this thing called the raw so 100 minute quali race is that the future for formula one <laughs> 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 the roar is a, a special thing I... and it used to be right after yep. the new year it's kind of new that it's just become the weekend before wow so that's that's an epic qualifying race did they have a lorry for the the winning drivers they they have several lorries but they're all parked in the paddock because they're race transporters <laughs> <laughs> well that's it's it's funny though because Daytona is an interesting place. You know, it's a whatever 3.6 mile track, something along those lines. But it's all contained in this, you know, whatever, half three quarter mile radius because it's all contained within the big super speedway. So it's a relatively tight space to get this done. So the lorry ride would be kind of short and heavily banked. So <laughs> I, I don't know exactly how they'd pull that part off, but it's, oh, it's that food sounds for thought even for better, IMSA. 
You'd lose drivers halfway around exactly. the parade lap. <laughs> it'd be like the it'd be like the anti gravity test afterwards or something. So yeah, we had the, an Acuron pole. The the number uh, I can't read my own writing. The number ten. Number yeah, six. it was number it was 10, it was Ricky Taylor that put it on pole, and uh, narrowly edging out the the Cadillacs. Right, who uh, number five Cadillac the. Uh, the Westbrook, the Westbrook caddy, and then the Jimmy Johnson caddy in third. So Jimmy was looking good. Jimmy Johnson, super fan <laughs> here. Can't uh, can't pry him away. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the it was five Cadillacs in DPI versus two Acuras. You know, we were not long ago where we had um, uh, four makes in four manufacturers in DPI, and now we're down to two Acura and Cadillac being the sole survivors. And, you know, it was interesting to see, you know, just looking at the numbers, it looked like Cadillac had the edge. But, you know, Acura proved to be quite strong. Yeah, so we uh, just to finish off, the, the other Acura was in fourth place. So, I mean, it looked like it was going to be a tight battle, didn't it? And then um, I don't know how much of the 24 hours you watched, but the first bit of footage I was able to catch, which I think was a... Uh, I don't know, a couple of hours into the race, the Acuras were all getting punctures. So both both cars suffered punctures within quite a short space of uh, of time within each other uh, and losing laps. I mean, I think Wayne Taylor was being interviewed. Um, no, 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 it wasn't Wayne Taylor. It was uh, Meyer your Shank. buddy. Meyer Shank, uh, Michael Shank was being interviewed when his car got, got a puncture. So real quickly, I'm glad you said that. I'm sorry, I'm interjecting. I apologize for that. But it is Michael yeah. Shank, owner of Meyer Shank Racing. So that yeah, Meyer is, a, right. is a, an important partner of his, and but the, the team owner's name is Michael Shank. Yeah, so he, the poor chap was all live on, on TV while his car was suffering because, you know, they'd been going pretty well up until that point. Uh, and he was projecting they might lose a couple of laps. I think in the end they only lost one lap, didn't they? But both of the Acuras were in trouble early on, um, yeah. and you know at least a lap behind. And it looked bleak for them because the Cadillacs uh, were going well at that stage. I then caught the next part. <laughs> next part of uh, the racing I managed to catch was just as Jimmy Johnson took to the wheel of the number forty-eight Cadillac, and uh, I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting to see oh, you know, if he's. If he's put his uh, IndyCar woes from last season behind him, and he hasn't, it's <laughs> a back marker. Well, uh, he's another driver that's getting well into his forties, and <laughs> you know this is it, it's for all. This is I have to. I'm trying to be balanced here because boy, am I tempted to jump on the Jimmy Jimmy Johnson badwagon, uh, the poking fun at Jimmy Johnson badwagon here, but. It was extremely cold temperatures. This, these were extremes that, if you're not a veteran sports car guy, it would throw most anybody off. I have to at least give him that caveat. I think he was the only one to hit a back marker, though, in the leading DPI cars, wasn't he? Well, <laughs> I mean, you're talking seven cars, four drivers per car, 28 drivers. One of 28 managed to hit a back marker. I mean, it's not great, is it? Really? No, it's not um, great. Listen. I, uh, yeah, look. So, yeah, Jimmy Johnson seems like a good guy. Seems like a really nice person. Great broadcaster. Obviously, strong NASCAR driver. I really try to keep it positive here. Okay, so 
we'll move on. So the other drama during the night was was the Ganassi effort falling by the wayside. So they had technical problems with both their cars. Uh, and they were really strong early on, both Ganassi cars were. As you'd expect, especially, you know, I mean, Ganassi's track record and, and the driver line. So one had an electrical issue and the other one had a fuel pump issue. And, and they, you know, they both finished, um, but, but well, you know, down the order. Um, so you basically then ha- ended up with a fight between two Acuras and two, two Cadillacs. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was great. They all finished on the same lap. I mean, 761 laps was uh, was what all of the leading DPI cars managed to to achieve and I mean the battle between the two Acuas who had by uh, after the last uh, pit stops were one and two um, well you know I mean they were nose and tail um, uh, nose to tail so you had Castro Neves just leading uh, Ricky Taylor and Castro Neves just managed to eke out a little lead right and hold it to the end I mean it was amazing yeah he ended up finishing like I don't know what it was three three and a half seconds in the lead and yeah, yep. it was an incredible run. And just as you said, to have the DPIs all on the lead lap like that, despite all those cautions and all the other things we just talked about, it was pretty incredible. And uh, we have the chance to hear from uh, Ricky Taylor about exactly that. So let's listen to that now. Ricky Taylor, driver of the Wayne Taylor Racing Acura AX ARX05 DPI car. Just had the 60th running of the 24 Hours of Daytona. It was something, man. It was definitely something. Uh, you started on pole. You ended up finishing the race in second. How are you doing? How is everything? Yeah, it's only been two days since the race. I thought it would be start feeling better by now, but I think it's only going to start feeling better once we get to Sebring. Um, <laughs> you know. We're very lucky to be able to, you know, have such a good shot at winning the Rolex 24. But um, when you come that close, it hurts. It hurts a lot. If you had won, it would have been four times in a row. That would have been a record. So you guys obviously were on a really good streak, or Wayne Taylor Racing was anyway. And there's a lot of different complications going. But at the same time, okay, it was like record cold right i mean record cold near record numbers of cars if not record number of cars there was a lot of new things going on and so there were just tons of factors so my question is when you looked at this year's rolex watch that you would have won were you a little bit disappointed in the design and that decided it wasn't worth it (laughs) yeah that was totally the reason we just we let else get it no it was yeah like you said it was a really tough year um between the the weather i live in florida and i live 35 minutes from the track and those are the two coldest days it's already back in the 70s today so i don't know what happened it's really just- so it, <laughs> so not only was it it was cold days and then it, it was just those days it was just those days yeah but I, funny enough our car loves those conditions and um after last year, how hard the race was to to hold off Ganassi. Um, if before the race we would have known that Ganassi would have had issues, we would have thought, oh, this is our chance. So that's kind of more of the, the reason is that we thought that, man, if we're not racing the strongest of the Cadillacs, we have to make the most of it and win, win the race. And so to still not win the race, and, and uh, that hurts. I, I think that makes it hurt a little bit more, just that it's a bit of a missed opportunity to to get that fourth. So the silver lining 
in it is that Acura did win the race and it was your former teammate that won the race. And it was both you in your car and Castro Neves in his car for the final stint. That's just a big mix of emotions right there. Obviously you're still recovering from the finish, but do you take any solace in the fact that it was Castro Neves that won and that it was in another Acura? Does that make you feel better or does that make it sting a little more? And I, I think it's, it's obvious we would have liked to be the lead Acura as well. Um, but it does help a lot that Acura, Acura won the race and that it was an Acura 1-2. Um, before the race, we thought we had no chance against the Cadillacs, honestly. Um, just after last year, they had so much pace. And, and all through the race, I thought the 5 car was strong. The 31 car was strong at times. Um, both Ganassis were strong. I thought, you know, the odds were against us. And so the fact that Acura won is is definitely uh, a, a major positive, and it definitely makes it, it hurt a lot less. But I think it was surreal, like you said, to to know that it's coming down to the last the last run to the finish, and it's uh, me and Elio and the two Acuras, you know, fighting out for the win. Definitely, he just continues to amaze everybody on on his pace and how he you know can up his game when it comes to the the highest the highest stakes of, you know, whether it's the Indy 500 or, or the Rolex 24. Right. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. It's, it's great to see him maintain and that he's a former teammate. And I, I I'm going to dare say a, a current friend of yours that that probably eases the pain a little bit. And the fact that you prove that in a long endurance race, that the Acura, despite there being five Cadillacs versus two Acuras, that the Acura is right there, obviously. So that, is encouraging for the rest of the season, including the upcoming 12 hours of Sebring. Yeah, I think, you know, like you, like you said, me and Elliot are great friends. And I think, I think to see him win and uh, I, I think a lot of people, I said this after he won the Indy 500 last year, like everybody else doubts him, but he never doubts himself. He knows he can do the job and yeah. it's so nice to keep, keep seeing and prove people wrong that, that don't, that think, you know, whatever age he is now, it just, he can keep executing and keep doing the job. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure numbers don't go that high, Ricky. So don't worry about, uh, <laughs> don't worry about knowing his age or not. Um, <laughs> let, let's get into the race itself. Uh, it was just, as you said, I mean, it was below freezing at times overnight. That's unheard of for Daytona. Is it, is it the coldest 24 you've ever experienced or has you experienced anything like that before? No, that was the coldest I'd ever experienced. I think it always does seem to get cold around that weekend for us Floridians, but that was that was crazy cold. I mean, the team went shopping the week before. They got battery-powered, like, heated vests and socks. <laughs> we were on the tiny stand. I've got a picture of one of our engineers in, like, a, like a dress sort of thing to keep his legs warm. And we had – other drivers had little booties to go on their feet and little – like the quarterbacks wear that their hands go in. Sure, yeah, yeah. Feet warm before we got in the car, which actually made a great difference because there's nothing worse than like losing that dexterity in your hands and toes oh, certainly. When, when you're going to go drive a race car. So um, that was really nice. And yeah, just crazy cold, but it was quite treacherous on the outlaps. But I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as we thought, I think. You're, you're leading into my next question perfectly because – as much as your preparation for the cold as a Michigan native makes me giggle, um, 
<laughs> it's got to be harder on the tires than anything, right? I mean, these are unheard yeah. of cold conditions. These tires like to run probably more in the 200 degrees Fahrenheit range, and they're hitting a surface that's 30 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever, maybe maybe 50 with sun load. But at night, obviously, there's none of that. How was tire management, and how did you cope with that? Yeah, I think it was interesting. I, um, the outlaps, we definitely did a little bit of an extra burnout leaving pit lane to try and get the rear tires. There's not a lot you can do at the front tires. And then, you know, as soon as you release the pit speed limiter, you're just doing everything you can to put heat in, in all four before you get to the first horseshoe. And then you get to the first horseshoe and the front just doesn't respond at all. It just goes dead straight. And then you you kind of get to the grass and then it ugh, hooks up a little bit. <laughs> and then, honestly, you're on edge until you get to uh, the banking for the first time. Uh, and you saw a lot of people either going off at three, going off at five, or going off at six. Oh, and until yeah. you stop, you're hanging on. And then for the first time ever, the bus stop was still slippery, where normally you get to the bus stop and you can breathe a bit. And this, this is year, after whatever, 165, 175 miles an hour on the banking. Yeah, which puts a lot of energy and heat into the tires normally. Yeah. It's still cold. And so it took a couple laps. Um, but the kind of new thing that we hadn't faced before was how cold the brakes got. And normally the brakes oh. were pretty warm. And so they actually took a couple laps to come up to temp as well. So we didn't see any funny wear, which we thought they were going to wear faster because of the cold, but it seemed to be quite normal, actually. Well, I mean, just as you were kind of alluding to, I, I think I think I've got the number right, 17 cautions, you know, like a caution every 80, 90 minutes if you averaged it out, kind of nuts to think about. And so many of those cautions were prototypes, LMP2s, LMP3s. Um, obviously, the GT cars had their their fair share as well. But what was it like having such a crowded field where just it seemed like my um, just lack of experience, it seemed like when you combine unprecedented cold weather with amateur driver classes that that really made it hard to keep the race under green yeah i i think all of your questions have kind of led to the some of the reasons why we had so many yellows the gtd cars with abs i think helps a lot for their outlaps sure um, yeah, yeah so i would feel a lot braver if i had had some braking assist for the cold tires so maybe that's why we didn't see them going off as much on on the cold tires situation, but when you're out there, the mix of normally the classes get separated when you had um, DPI, LMP2, uh, LMP3, GTLM, then GTD, where now instead of having like evenly spaced and like gaps between them, now it was just, I don't know how many, like 35 GTDs. And so they're all clumped together. So you never really got to they weren't really stringing out very much. And there were so many, I guess with the addition of the pro class, there were so many pros in at a time that they were just battling like crazy. There, And there wasn't really a clear separation of like, the AMs were a bit more sparse. So they weren't separating. And so that was kind of condensing everybody together. And the fighting was a lot more aggressive and intense. It was wild and it became, you had to take a lot more risk getting through them because um, a lot more times, they were side by side already 
and they'd be side by side for a sequence of corners. Yeah, 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 yeah. With the combination of the amount of LMP2s and LMP3s with these other factors, were there too many prototypes? Was was it a liability to have that many amateur prototype drivers at the race? Um, I don't. I don't think so. Um, at least the ones I got around were. It seemed like everybody, as long as the drivers were coexisting well together, I didn't feel like anybody was doing anything too crazy, and everybody was quite well aware of what was going on. I, I mean, obviously, there's a bit of etiquette that you wish people would have more more times than sure. not. Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of the series and the classes, the prototypes were the least of our worries because we saw them less than the GTDs. So you didn't actually come across too many dangerous guys in, in LMP3s or LMP2s. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From what I watched, and this is, again, my uh, this is my unexperienced, untrained eye here, it seemed like your car maybe took an extra lap to really get up to temp and really be at full competition speed, but then you guys could maintain that better over the stint than some of the other drivers. Was there, was there some like inherent setup changes or like very deliberate precaution that you guys took on the opening laps to really make sure you warmed up the tires properly? That explains that, or did I just miss, miss see what I, did I just misjudge what I was seeing? No, I think I think you're right on the on the outlap side of it. We we always seem to struggle a bit more than the Cadillacs. They inherently have really good traction. Um, whereas the engine in back and then <laughs> the big heavy V8 in back. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think I think it's down to a little bit of the design philosophy of the car. The Orica being designed for Le Mans and smooth tracks without a lot of like slow bumpy hairpin sort of situation the cadillac was designed for america with the delaros was a lot more suited for american style racing and so we've always had that struggle i think once we get to the lmdh era acura is going to have a lot more say in how the car is designed so we'll have uh, a bit more a suited car for these style of racetracks sure um so that that gave us a bit of a struggle on the cold tires side but as we got into the stint a bit more um, I think a lot of what you might have seen was sort of off-sequence off with tires. We tended to do a lot of two-tire stops. Didn't really double stint very often, where I feel like the, the Cadillacs were double stinting quite a lot. And so that might have shown a little bit of our end-of-stint performance. Those two tires tended to to help us a little bit more at the end of that second stint. But I think when you looked at the end of the race, as it got warmer, we lost a bit of that. When everybody was taking four, we sort of seemed to suffer in that last third of the stint, actually. Wow. Okay, okay. So I know in the first part of the race, your teammate, Will Stevens, he had a cut tire, and uh, that, that set you back a couple laps. How, how much did that really hurt you guys? How much did that throw off your strategy? Because I, I was shocked at how many DPIs consistently stayed on the lead lap. Yeah, I think it's it's crazy how IMSA racing goes. When you lose a lap, you don't re- you don't really lose your confidence too much as as long as you lose it early. And yeah, we lost two laps. Um, our protocol is just pit speed limiter all the way into the pit lane, like so you can't break anything because that tire coming apart could have cut a radiator or anything. And so Will did exactly what what we were told to do and. Although it's painful to lose the two laps just creeping around the track, 
um, that kept us in the race and kept all the floor components and everything in, in one piece. And so the car performance was great after that. It was like we didn't miss a beat. But then you just have to rely on getting yellows, which, as you alluded to earlier, there are plenty of yellows. <laughs> yeah, plenty of those, yeah. Just strategize your way back in. And, and although there, there were lots of yellows, there are also two two-car teams now. So them splitting strategies makes it sometimes harder to, to get laps back. But they didn't, they didn't commit to holding us laps down with their strategies, at least. So we were able to get the two laps back and, and get right back into the race quite quickly. Although immediately after we lost the two, it didn't seem like, I think we went two or three hours without getting yellow. So it was like, oh, maybe it's going to be one of these. But, but yeah. then they started to play on top of each other again. Yeah, no, I remember seeing that. I, I didn't watch 24 hours straight, I, I, <laughs> I, I shamefully admit. But uh, <laughs> I kept checking in and I kept seeing you guys you know, in that it was like late early evening stint where it was like two laps down, two laps down, two laps down. I'm like, Oh, come on, man. You guys were on pole. Come on. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and then I saw that it was a Will Stevens thing and I was all set up to just blame Will Stevens for everything. <laughs> and, uh, but then, you know, then you managed to recover and you were right there at the end. So yeah, it's, it's funny how race strategy can play, play a role with yellows and stuff like that. And obviously you and your team they're so seasoned and so good at this at the sport in general and then at this race in particular that uh if anyone can do it it'd be you guys from your perspective just to take a broader view of it was the race any different to have uh gtd pro instead of gt lamont did that make any difference to you guys at all um i don't think so i think like like we said earlier, just having more GTD cars in one class was different just because you, you'd see packs of them more. Instead of coming up on four of them, you came up on 15 of them. <laughs> okay, so yeah, yeah. It became really treacherous to get through. But normally when you get to the end of the race, it's all the pros finishing anyway. So you're kind of used to that rhythm of it. Um, obviously, it was one less thing to think about as far as separating classes. Like normally when you have uh, detail i'm out there okay i can't pass here i can pass here uh versus a gtd where you can pass in maybe some more places where now you only have to think about one less class yeah 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 obviously you guys you couldn't quite hold on to cash nevis for that last stint. he ended up what three seconds out of you or something throughout the yeah. stint but your pace was incredibly strong throughout the 24-hour race did this help hurt maintain your confidence going into the 12 hours of Sebring? Yeah, I think it helped, actually. I did not have the pace of Elio at the end. I think their car, you know, we had we had definitely had them covered overnight. Like, I thought we were, us and Ganassi, I thought we were the two strongest cars at night. And if we had gotten into the lead, we, we always felt like we could open the gap. But in the day, they they just had us covered whether it was due to some damage we sustained overnight or what, what it might have been, I don't know. But they did a great job on on getting a good car for the end of the race. But going to Sebring, I think last year we already had a great car at Sebring. So to think that we can take, you know, everything that we've learned throughout the year and then the good performance in Daytona, Sebring we should have we should be even better than last year. Had we not had that slice in the in the turbo last year, we could have fought for the win. So I'm really excited to go back. I think I think we have all the pieces in place to go fight for the win there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you feel strong about your performance 
relative to the Cadillacs at Sebring, even though, as you said earlier, it seems like the Delara is a little bit better suited for what is very distinctly American, an American track in Sebring. Yeah. So, I mean, if you were to, to give each car their sort of advantages and disadvantages, you'd say the, you know, the Cadillac is a, is a mechanical grip car. It makes a lot of grip and, you know, low speed, bumpy corners sort of things like street courses, like Long Beach and Detroit. The Acura makes a lot of downforce and is really efficient uh, when you put a lot of downforce on. So uh, high-speed tracks, Mossport, Watkins Glen, Laguna, sort of flat, smooth, fast tracks. Um, but it's funny. Road America. Go, Road America is a great track for the Acura. Yeah. Um, but when you go to uh, Sebring, it's funny how it kind of mixes a bit of them where it is bumpy, but it's also fast. So the two cars actually match up quite evenly. Um, sort of like Petit Le Mans, where it's it's a good mix of corners and sure, yeah. And so the two cars end up becoming very close there, uh, with positives and, and negatives throughout the lap. So I think going there is is, a, is an exciting weekend because the race is super super close. And you feel you feel reasonable that BOP is 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 okay for you guys. I think so. I think if you for Sebring in particular, I think we're the BOP is quite quite good. Uh, if you look at the season as a whole, I think the IMSA philosophy isn't to make every car equal at every track. It's sort of just what's going to be the the equal throughout the year. Um, so there's tracks where we have our strengths, and certain tracks where they have their strengths. And you know, so some tracks where we don't have a chance, and some tracks where honestly they don't have as good of a shot either. But Sebring, I think, is one where it's quite even. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it's always great to talk to you, Ricky. Last thing, I just I, I want to put it out there. Clearly, Will Stevens isn't up to this. And as you can see, <laughs> I've now gone to Harvard. Um, also, I have raced at Sebring before. And in Skip Barber, I was at a support race, 12 hours Sebring. So I know the track. So look, man, if you need to do a tire swap, you just let me know. And if it's like a tea, th- I drink tea so I can do the English thing. And uh, I, I can just uh, take Will Stevens' place. So, <laughs> Okay, I think just put on that English accent. And you might have <laughs> oh, but I, I've, I've got the best possible English accent you could ever hear because I've watched Mary Poppins a lot. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ricky, it's always good talking to you. Always good to hear a good older brother's perspective on things. Tons of respect for the work you do and the fact that you had such a crazy race and you were still right there at the end. I mean, I know that it stings, it must sting, but I was, for what it's worth, I was incredibly impressed at uh, the teams and your performance. You were the one that did a lot of the climb back from being two laps down. And I mean, obviously your, your effort was, uh, was lion so i just uh good luck at sebring and uh yeah man just just stellar job at daytona better luck next year yeah thanks robin it's always great to talk to you too thank you again ricky taylor it's always always great to talk to you uh really excited for what you guys can potentially do at sebring but uh yeah i really appreciate ricky's insights into these things he's you know it's the fact that he didn't win is still a little fresh, you could tell. So he he put on a brave face, though, and uh, and and I, as you heard, just was a great great person to talk to. 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not easy to, to race for that amount of time and lose by three seconds, is it? That's pretty gutting. To his former teammate. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> In a sister know. car. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they gave everything, right? I mean, it was a great battle to the flag. That's all you can really do. But uh, you wonder where you might have gained three seconds somewhere within the 24-hour racing right, period, right. I would imagine. It, but don't forget, but, I mean, yeah, those, back- guys, those guys won the 24 Hours Daytona together last year. So not just not just teammates at Penske, you know, teammates at the 24 Hours of Daytona last year. Right, right. Well, they were going for what? Four, four in a row? Wayne Taylor Racing was Wayne going Taylor for Racing. four in a row. Yeah. That's an amazing record. I mean, you know, Daytona's a competitive race. I mean, it always, I mean I've been a fan of it for for years. I mean, it, it, it uh, draws great race teams from around the world. So to win it that many times in a row is astonishing. It's the season opener of road racing for the entire world, really, right? So Yeah, it is, yeah. But uh, back-to-back wins for Castro Neves following uh, on his historic 500 win last year. He's going through a, a purple patch in the twilight of his career, isn't he? Yeah, but I mean, okay, listen, he's he's in his mid forties now and he's entered a couple races these last couple of years that he hasn't won. So you know, he's not he doesn't have a one hundred percent win record here. I don't know. Is it time to hang up his helmet? <laughs> well, he's thinking he wants a little bit of uh, a trip over the pond to France. He wants to go to Le Mans with Maya Shank. And it looks like they might be there in twenty three with the uh, Acura L M D H. Yeah, with the DMH car. Yeah. That's a that's yeah. a huge that's a huge get for a lot of guys, especially the uh, long term IMSA guys that haven't had the chance to go. They really want to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Maya Shank was there in sixteen in LMP two, so they they know a little bit about how to navigate uh, Le Mans. So, so that that's one to watch. That'd be fantastic if he could add uh, Le Mans to his uh, his record. Not quite the same triple crown that Alonso was going for because he hasn't won. Uh, Monaco or the F1 championship, but still a pretty decent one to win the 500 Daytona and Le Mans. That's still a pretty good uh, one. And obviously the IndyCar championship. Yeah. Uh, well, how many we, times has he won that? He never won the championship. He won. He, he did won. Not. In, wow. He won the 500 four times, and he won yeah. over 30 races, but he never won the championship. Oh, is that because Frank Kitty and Dixon always won it? And before that is Gilles de Ferrin. So uh, yeah. he were he was a uh, he was Gilles de Ferrin's teammate at Penske in the early aughts, and then uh, you know he's stuck with Penske as other people came and went. And he saw Joseph Newgarden win. He saw a lot of people come and go. Uh, Tony Kanaan won one year uh, several years ago now. Um, but yeah, it, it just never came never came his way. But he won a lot of races, and he's proving just how quick he still is and just how how in, how much he can uh, not just have the speed but also have the endurance. Yeah, I mean, it, definitely a lot was made of Castroneves and he did a fine job closing it out. But, but by all accounts, the key uh, stint was, was done by Blomquist, right? He uh, managed to get the car in the lead prior to the last round of stops and before he handed it over to Castroneves. So, I mean, obviously it was a good team effort by all four drivers with Paginal obviously a decent peddler himself and uh, Jarvis holding up his end. So yeah, amazing. And I think that was the first uh, Daytona win for, for Jarvis and Blomquist. So very cool uh, team, team uh, effort there for Maya Shank. So well done to them. I think we should, uh, we should touch on the LMP two because uh, I didn't realize how far behind the winning car was at one stage. I guess after a third of the race, eight hours, they were three laps down 
uh, they'd had a, a bit of a disaster uh, getting the uh, the Dragon Speed entry running cleanly early on, and they found themselves three laps down, but came back to win it. And this is a this is a category where everyone was racing essentially the same chassis. Yeah, it it's like it near spec to... class, basically. That right? one. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and it Colton looks like Herta was, was driving man, out right? of his mind again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's, so Colton Herta was in the winning car there. And yeah, he just drove. It's just some of his moves were insane. Yeah. And well, he only took the lead with 10 minutes to go. Did a Le Mans chicane. And, uh, and that was it. Done and dusted. 10 minutes to spare. He could have left it later, couldn't he? It made it a bit more dramatic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yes, and you know LMP LMP three was also there, but come on, we got to talk about these GTT cars and Porsche. Oh man, yeah, I mean that was they all so they had, we had four cars, at least four cars anyway, according to my notes, all on the same lap, seven hundred and eleven laps, the winning car completed, but the Jamonet Ventour battle was just incredible, and I mean we had uh, Jamonet leading uh, with a few laps to go with Vantor basically on his on his trunk lid. And uh, Vantor managed to find a way past. He did look quicker, didn't he? He found his way past with yeah. four minutes left. Looked like it was done, but Jaminet thought differently. He managed to pass him back on the last lap, prompting Vantor to do uh, his do-or-die effort uh, at the chicane on the final lap, which, uh, which came off rather badly for him. And he uh, ended up third. Yeah. Disaster. Yeah, he 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 didn't it wasn't a full 360 but he he got way sideways, ended up spending some time in the grass and uh yeah, couldn't couldn't hold on to second place. And you know, Porsche there might be a shortage of uh 911 front fenders after those two <laughs> went at it. My god. I mean, there I don't know if you would say there was still respect on the track or not. That was just that was insane how hard they were pushing each other. They were so evenly matched around the lap, weren't they? They, was, they were literally running identical lap times. It didn't matter who was in front. The other one could stick with them. And it was just, it was brilliant. I mean, so the Ferrari ended up, you know, lucking into second place. But those two, I mean, that, that made the, the whole race for me. That was just, a, to be that close, you know, at the end of 24 hours of racing, astonishing, really, really, really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I'm sure the, uh, the, the number two entry, uh, that was, that was driven by Vanto at the end, they must be pretty gutted to end up with third, but I mean, you got to give him credit for having a go. I mean, he saw the chance to win the race, took it and didn't come off, but I, I, I suspect he probably doesn't regret having a go rather than just following him to the flag for second. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, I, and it was just, as you said, it was, epic fun to watch and porsche also took the gtd non-pro class as well so porsche owned the uh, gt cars in, in at the 24 hours of daytona very very good run for them yeah i mean aston martin uh was the runner-up in gtd they on the same lap again so 707 laps so you had uh, you know i think three of the classes all with finishes on the same number of laps at the end of the race, which is which is pretty cool. So it just shows that um, that the formulas are pretty well constructed and the teams are, are very even, and, and it produces good racing. I mean, it's hard to watch a twenty-four hour race. You know, that's that's hardcore as, as a fan. But uh, if you tuned in, it, it rewarded you. Yeah, absolutely. Just one question. Maybe you know the answer to this. What happened to the Corvettes? They really uh, they really struggled. I was surprised because uh, obviously the Corvette team uh, have historically been very, very strong in sports car racing. Are they struggling with their new 
uh, mid-engine Corvette, or are they? Is it just the way the formula is configured? It just doesn't doesn't lend itself to their their entry. Do you have any idea? Well, I think it be probably very similar story to BMW. So they were both GT Le Mans cars last year, and now they're in GTD Pro. So it's a different class car. They have to reconfigure the. It's, so they're not. It's not a second year for the mid-engine Corvette. It's the first year in a new class for the mid-engine Corvette. And I think oh, I, see. I think that probably just threw them off because BMW, they struggled as well. And BMW is often a front runner. You know, uh, BMW, uh, you know, good friend, uh, good friend of mine and friend of the show, uh, Jonathan Edwards, who won a couple years back. You know, they struggled as well. I think it ended up finishing seventh. So there's it's just, I think, teething issues as much as anything. Cool. Well, let's hope they're stronger at Le Mans. Anyway, uh, most, it's just really good to be back uh, to be off our winter break of podcasting. Um, we will be podcasting, um, getting into the season. We have IndyCar racing coming up in just a few weeks' time. We have the Formula One tests that you mentioned. Sebring's not too far away. And then, yeah, we're not far. It's the middle of March and Formula One starts again. So we have a lot to talk about in terms of racing coming up soon. And even more immediately... We have my YouTube channel, and boy, oh boy, I've got several videos for you to check out if you haven't seen them yet, but there's two I want to mention. I did a video over Christmas, actually, on the Chevrolet Corvette. It is this mid-engine car, that race car you're just talking about. I, I drove the streetcar version of that, and I drove the streetcar version of that on winter tires, and I achieved, according to Corvette's own eternal G-meter, 0.98 G's on snow tires in that Corvette. <laughs> that thing is a monster. It is so much fun. It is awesome. Also, was that on Huron, was that on Huron River Drive? You no, recorded sir. that uh, lateral G. That was that was entering the interstate. Is where that was achieved. <laughs> okay. um, also, uh, I just recently did a video on the brand new Toyota Corolla Cross, which is the SUV version of the Toyota Corolla which is like, you know, the smallest SUV Toyota offers, but a much more bigger grown-up version of that compared to the C-HR. And I did a video on that as well. And that one, you know, with family being at Toyota, I thought might be a little bit closer to you. And yes, Chris, sadly, both of those cars are more than $25,000. So where do you stand on the whole uh, mid-engine, front-engine Corvette debate? I mean, are you more of a purist and you think it should have stayed in the front of the front of the car or you uh, do you think the handling benefits uh, justify the decision i was i was slow to adapt but i i was able to drive the car uh, when it first came out and i was like yeah okay it drives well it 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 didn't it didn't look cool enough to me at first glance to to make up for it but after being able to spend a few days with it and start to look at the details and to see just how well Chevrolet executed on getting the driving feel, the driving dynamic of the car. It feels like a mid-engine supercar. It doesn't feel as nice as a Lamborghini, but it certainly feels a lot nicer than 25% of a Lamborghini, and it costs 25% as much. Do you know what I mean? So you have a car that's, yeah, that's right. You have a car that's 80% to a Lamborghini, maybe 75% percent to a ferrari and cost 25 percent as much oh i mean it's just it's it's fantastic 
Corvette's always been a, a supercar bargain, hasn't it? It's always it's always offered an incredible performance for the dollar, and that's still the case. I mean, it's uh, I think what 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 was the sticker on what you drove? Seventy thousand, eighty thousand dollars? Yeah, just over eighty. Yeah, so I mean, that's still what what's the cheapest Lambo these days? A couple of hundred thousand. So yeah, quarter mil, yeah. really. And that McLaren yeah. that you got that we had, you know, that was as tested three hundred forty thousand dollars. Base price three hundred three. The base price for the Corvette is under sixty five. Yeah, that's that's astounding. I uh, I'm with you on the styling. I've, I'm not entirely convinced that they really maximized what they could do with uh, with the mid engine layout. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not a disaster by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it still turns your head and it it looks pretty cool. And and uh, uh, the interior is a nice update from the last gen. So yeah. I'd, Sounds like a video I want to watch. And room to grow for the C9. So, yeah. And, yeah, it, I I would love it if you watch the video. I, I encourage everyone to watch it several times. <laughs> but uh, for now, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcast. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page or our meta page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Oh, Chris, so nice to shake the dust off the microphones and talk to you again. Definitely, Robin. Thank you very much. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.